And we're back to Heart Fails 73. I found out in my life that it's always a good idea to just assume that somebody that you're talking to is smarter than you are. Mm -hmm. And you actually have documentation that says that you are smarter than me. <laughs> is this true? <laughs> what do you mean by documentation? Well, you, you are actually a teacher. You are well, a professor. I am, yes. My uh, wife asked if you were a doctor, and I said, I don't know, actually. Yes. You are. Yes, okay. I do have a PhD. Okay, um, so. excellent. And your name is? <laughs> My name is Alan Love. And you, you don't have to mention the, the university or school, but you do work in, uh, you can mention the department, right? Yes, yeah, so I work in a large uh, research university and in the Department of Philosophy. You, you, the philosophy of science, is yes. that right? Yes. So my wife and I were at a potluck because we're in the Midwest, and that's what you do when you're in the Midwest after a church service. Not all the time. Yeah. Not as much as we would like, right? Is that one of those things, too? We would like to have more potlucks? Well, certainly uh, the uh, <laughs> pande the pandemic certainly, I think, made people want them more than they thought they might have wanted There them. you go. <laughs> Craving the fellowship. So you were sitting across from my wife with um, our pastor, and you had mentioned that you're, uh, it's philosophy of science. Yes. And both of my wife are like shaking her heads like, oh, yeah, cool, cool, cool. And then we got in the car later on and both of us are like, we have no idea what that means. <laughs> so can you can you try yeah, and explain sure. that in a, maybe a minute or so? Yeah, no, that it's a good question. If you think about philosophy, philosophy is broadly studying what humans do. So people do moral philosophy because humans make moral claims. There are philosophers of aesthetics and art because humans make art and we have questions about what counts as beautiful or not. We have uh, philosophers who focus on, um, you know, social features of our, you know, what does it mean to be in society and what are good forms of society and relationships. So philosophers are kind of generally interested in the human condition. A philosopher of science is interested in how humans engage in these activities that we label scientific. So a biologist goes to work in the morning. What does she do? A physicist goes to work in the morning. What does she do if they do they do the same thing? Do they do different things? What makes them scientific? And what uh, most people are familiar with from science education is a kind of cartoon version of the scientific method. It's because it's usually got six steps, you know, make a hypothesis, make, go, go observe something. And they always have uh, beakers on the table. Yes. And you know, wear, wear a white coat if possible. And in a sense, a philosopher of science is interested in getting back behind those surfaces and understanding, um, what's going on. So just as a philosopher who's interested in moral reasoning, will be the first one to say, you know, well, a statement like do not lie turns out to be complicated because what happens when the Nazis come to your door and ask you if you're hiding Jews? Do you tell them the truth? So, you know, philosophers are oftentimes wanting to make sure we don't give too quick answers um, and recognize the, the complexity. So a philosopher of science wants to get to the bottom of that with respect to scientific reasoning, how it works, really say, okay, well, do scientists have an explicit sense of what counts as a good explanation? Is that the same across the sciences? How do scientists go about measuring things? How do they know when they've measured things properly? Like, what's the signal? Um, 
how do you know what's one scientist's domain rather than another? Um, you know, the world doesn't come with labels that says, physicist, please study me. Um, it does have <laughs> on that box or on your iPad or whatever, it does have, we're following the science. Like that's, that's going to be in the dictionary of phraseology now. You hear that a lot. Yes, and I think that for philosophers of science, we will be the first people to say that's not a straightforward statement because it makes it sound as if there was a clear, almost like a cereal box you could take off the shelf and say, I've got the science and I'm following it. A and factual consensus that nobody could argue with. Right, and I think that... There are things that are consensus claims in the sciences. So it's not the case that a philosopher is trying to be skeptical. The philosopher's goal is not to undermine knowledge. In fact, I think when philosophers uh, are sort of working at their best, what they're actually doing is sifting those things that are well-supported and why from those things that are not well-supported and why, and being able to discern the difference between the two and when you say, follow the science, you don't have that kind of nuance to be able to sort out the, okay, this is successful science, and here's why it is. And you know what? Over here, we don't maybe know as much as we'd like to know and therefore need to be more cautious. And are there sort of patterns to that in the history where we sort of know that at different points in time, there have been uh, uh, things that we were more confident of, things that we had better measurements of, um, and things that we maybe were too confident of and had to back off the confidence or really didn't know what we were talking about and then made a big discovery and really opened up the, the sort of, oh, this is the kind of skeleton key that really helps us see what's going on here. I think I have an analogy here. So I'm, when you're talking about this, I'm thinking of like bridge building. Mm -hmm. So you can look at a bridge and bridges have been made for thousands of years. There's still bridges over in Rome that mm -hmm. are still standing yeah. kind of thing. But we're in Minnesota where we had a bridge that collapsed. So obviously there was something wrong with that bridge that some people may have pointed out, hey, this is wrong, but nobody really paid attention to it. Mm-hmm. Just as there's different styles of building bridges, you can use stone, you can use wood, you can use yeah. bricks, you can use rope, you can use animals, depending <laughs> on if they'll stay still or not. Yeah. <laughs> Just thinking of, sorry. <laughs> but <laughs> my mind got distracted now on jumping over an alligator or jumping on an alligator. <laughs> but um, that's kind of the analogy that I'm seeing. Like you can factually see how a bridge is made. That that's kind of science is based upon that. I mean, or, or you can you can observe the method of building a bridge. This is observational science when you're dealing with people and emotions and different effects of different things on different people and all this kind of stuff. There's so many variables that it does mm -hmm. become like you'll kind of hear like, well, studies have shown that milk is bad for you. Well, in one of the studies. 23% of people had a negative effect. Mm -hmm. So they might say, okay, it's bad for you because 23% of those studies had a negative effect. But in other studies, they'll say, oh, yes, this is completely fine because a majority of people were fine. 
Well, a majority of people can be 51. Yeah. <laughs> so it's one of those things like yep. dig a little deeper and just kind of see what are the variables? What are the assumptions made? Do you deal with a lot of assumptions? Yeah. This, that- I mean, what you're describing is very much the stock and trade of uh, what a philosopher of science would look at. So if you were studying something like nutrition science, um, you would be interested in, well, what are your sample sizes? Where are the populations being sampled from? Um, are there confounding variables in the, in the study? You know, is it the case that if you are, you know, assessing whether or not, uh, you know, milk chocolate is good or bad for you, do you sort of have people eat dark chocolate and then drink milk and sort of look for ways in which you can, you know, tease apart different variables that might be relevant. However, you can't eat dark chocolate without drinking milk. That's that's fine. Impossible. The the good news is it's not really that much of a difference on your health either way. Um, But I think that the, the concern that you're raising also gets at another issue, which is scientific uh, communication, because for the most part, we don't metabolize scientific research. We get something that's pre-digested. We get something that somebody who's writing about the science tells us in a news story format or something along those lines. And so you can have problems there that are not intrinsic to the science itself, where if we went to the original paper, the original paper might have all the statements of the qualifications that are supposed to be there, but the person who's writing the copy for the evening news can't put that in the story. And so then the story gets simplified and simplified in ways that then can become confusing because if you run the story one day of the week that says studies have shown coffee is good for you and then you do the next week's studies have shown that coffee is bad for you, the person who's only hearing those pre-digested stories says, wait a second, one week you said true, one week you said false. That's not, that doesn't make sense. Usually it's just a retraction, a small retraction about last week's story. Usually they well, don't contradict it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I just, some, sometimes they contradict it directly. <laughs> they just they just say, studies studies now show. That's actually the word, studies now show. Yeah. That, that's probably the weasel word that gets used. The facts have changed. The facts have changed. <laughs> I think, I think they're the... So I would want to keep separate the science communication dimension from the, the, the difficulties of doing the science um, because you can have difficulties of doing science independently of science communication and science communication has its own sort of issues and sort of how it's done and how well it's done and whether it's done with certain kinds of agendas. But in terms of the actual scientific investigation, I think one of the things that a philosopher of science is really interested in is really recognizing uh, the degree to which certain kinds of assumptions do lead researchers down particular paths, do encourage them to see some explanations rather than others, um, and then see also whether or not those things have some historical conditioning to them. Is it the case that you know th- there's a dominant viewpoint they kind of grew 15, 20 years ago, and now everybody kind of works within this intellectual space. And if we went back behind that, that wouldn't have been true. But that's kind of where we're at now. And then it's a reminder that, well, science is changing. Like, they're, they're, it's not static. And fields are responsive to new results, new technologies, um, new configurations of scientists. 
scientists. Uh, so this is an area that I'm interested in when there's interdisciplinarity. What happens when scientists who live in, you know, literally different tribes um, sort of do cross-disciplinary work and interact with one another? Well, sometimes you get sparks and explosions and nothing really productive. Sometimes you get really deep studies because all of a sudden somebody's blind spot can be seen by somebody else and you have a stronger outcome as a consequence. That's, that's really neat to, to see happen. It's more likely to happen, um, I think, now than it was several decades ago because there's some incentive structure for that in funding and some other places. But what we still don't know, and this is what I guess you know, I get up in the morning as part of my, my job to do, is better understand you know, why does it work when it works? Why does it fail when it fails? And can we then, you know, bring those things to bear on new projects? Can we, you know, look forward and say, okay, if I'm going to design new research, can I take lessons from the past that tell me if I configure things this way, I'm setting myself up for failure? As opposed to if I configure this things this way, I can't guarantee success, but I can increase the probability. I, when I was in high school, we were talking about this kind of beforehand, but I had a history teacher. He was my world history teacher, and he taught his story, capital H-I-S, yeah. story, because mm-hmm. I went to a Christian, professed Christian mm-hmm. high school, and his, his most famous phrase was, times change, people don't. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a good transition here. Okay. Uh, quickly describe your relationship with God. Oh, that's my. not a that's not a quick thing. But yeah. Just <laughs> um, well, I think that uh, in some ways I would want to be quick to emphasize that as somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about the world and how we investigate it, um, my sort of relationship with God is simple in the same ways that it should be for anybody. Um, which is a recognition that <laughs> um, I'm a sinner and uh, that I'm a creature, not the creator. And these sort of basic truths that orient you to recognize um, your needs uh, um, in terms of uh, salvation, in terms of recognizing that you are not inclined towards the good, towards uh, the things that you should be um, by your natural disposition. So in that respect, I, I'm, I'm quite pedestrian. I'm, I'm not unusual, strange, or, uh, you know, puzzling. I, you know, uh, just as I put my pants on the same way as everybody else, I open the pages of the Bible the same way as anybody else. And you do open the pages <laughs> of the Bible. So this is kind of one of those nice transitions, though, because you are a professor, a doctor, yeah. a, a scientist. Is, uh, w- is that accurate to say that you're a scientist or not so much? Yeah, not so much. Not by, not by disciplinary association. I, I, I would be described as a philosopher. Philosopher. Um, see, we, we did spend 10 minutes proving, I believe, that you were smarter than me. So thank you for doing <laughs> that. We didn't set out for that, but I think everybody would recognize that. But you did mention about checks and balances in science. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, in the philosophy of science and the transition to 
um, our Christian faith. We met at the church that we go to. This is how we met. Yep. I, we maybe had 10 minutes of conversation before I came over to your house total. <laughs> I don't know, maybe a little more. We did more talk that, more in the potluck. But I knew yeah. instantly from just listening to you that this is a guy who doesn't just you know, go through his day and put on his pants and turn on the news and turn on a movie. You had, I think you had mentioned that if you could get paid to just read all day, that, that would be your perfect job. Yes, it's certainly the case that I am a verbivore and love to uh, uh, read and always have. And it's been something that's kind of a, you know, deep internal motivation that uh, uh, I don't want to um, uh, spend my days uh, <laughs> watching too much TV or other things. I'd really like to read another book. But at the same time, it, it's more than that because the reading is not simply a kind of entertainment or a stimulation, but rather it's activating one's sort of mental faculties to understand what you're reading and recognize how it changes the way you think about the world, how somebody might be making a claim and overreaching, and therefore they're actually... Uh, shouldn't be as confident as they are to be aware of different perspectives that might shed light on things that you can't uh, see from your own perspective and you get that through the reading and I think all of those things are I mean I, I, I don't know if there's a particular term for it but you might think of it as a kind of more active reading where you literally with a pen in hand sometimes uh, making marginal notes of what you're reading uh, at other times writing about what you're reading because you work out your thoughts by writing them you know typing them in this day and age and uh, uh, and touching that's a screen touching the screen whatever <laughs> you whatever your preference is that's the thing that I think is is different um, about the way that somebody who as a scholar, sort of, you know, scientist or humanist in terms of the kind of scholarship that you do. Those are, those are some of the things that animate people, that they, they want to do that kind of active reading and digging. And the reading, of course, is a kind of scrutiny. It's a kind of pull back the layers, unpack the details, take things apart, you know, try and contextualize them or see connections across boundaries that other people haven't previously thought about. You know, not everybody wants to do that. Not everybody is, that's not their natural disposition. But I think that it's certainly something that uh, combines quite well with a Christian faith because all of those things are uh, naturally exercised upon scriptural reading, theology, church history, and the like. Reading for a purpose rather than reading for escape. Yeah, I think a, a I think I think that's a good way of capturing it. It's not that reading for escape is is all is somehow always bad or something like that. There's certainly good reasons to, you know, read things that take our minds off of other things. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that uh, uh, Tolkien was actually quite clear about this in his discussion of fairy stories and why he wrote uh, what he did that it was definitely not about escape. It was not about somehow getting away from the world that we're in to go to another world. But it was rather 
taking this alternate perspective on our world, on things that are relevant to and happening in our world in, in such a way that you get depth perspective that would otherwise be unavailable. And uh, to, to me, that I think is, the, is, a, is, a, is a nice insight because many times people think, oh, well, you would read fiction as, a, as, as an escape and you would read nonfiction as not escape or something like that. And I think that's a false that's contrast. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't work that way. You can read nonfiction as escape literature <laughs> and, 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 and really good fiction is nothing about escape. Uh, I just started reading a, a book to my kids this morning called Ali's Journey, I think. And it's about a boy that was born with a little hole in his heart. Mm. And while the parents were waiting to find out in the hospital what, how big of a hole, how serious right. this is, the mom actually sews a little teddy bear because she knows how to create and sew and make a little teddy bear. But then she put bunny ears on it, so it's not exactly a teddy bear. Okay. Um, but so then she finished it, and they found out the boy's heart is okay. It's just a small hole, and it's going to be all good. This is deep stuff for a children's book. But that's yeah. the, if you find a good children's book, like there's a lot of real intense things in here. And I'm almost like, oh, should I stop reading? No, this is fine. This is life. This is all good. Um, and so then the mom hands it to the baby and they found out the baby's okay. And he says, Ali, 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 which a baby being able to talk right away is kind of funny to me, <laughs> but they do, they make noises. So it's Ali. And then it's all talking about this toy's journey because as soon as the toy was given to the baby and the baby grabbed the ear, it's taking the standpoint of then the toy realized that its name was Ali. And the whole story, I can tell already, we've read like two or three chapters this morning, but it's going to be all about how this toy belongs to this baby and how the toy is riding home and realizing what moon and light is and, you know, sitting down. It's like becoming aware and all this kind of stuff. I know it's going to be brilliant just because you can tell right away that it's taking this obvious concept that no toys don't have feelings <laughs> like that. Yeah. Sorry to break that to anybody to ruin the story. This is a fantasy story, but it's telling true human truth. It's true. Yeah. That's redundant human truth. No. And I, I would actually want to emphasize that it's not just books, um, but this could be done in many different kinds of media. Yeah. Uh, you can have it, I mean, the example you just gave makes me immediately think of the powerful storytelling in Toy Story, mm -hmm. um, where you, you know, are clearly learning relatively deep things about how we think about human relationships growing up, what it means to be a kid, and the and the like, in that particular format. Now we know that not every movie uh, is able to plumb those depths or do that in as effective of a way, and uh, but it uh, is a reminder that the ability to accomplish that uh, diving beneath the surface and getting something richer doesn't demand that it be serious or boring. Mm -hmm. um, it can be done with quite creative uh, imagination. And I think that uh, that's something that is not always uh, uh, recognized about some of these activities that, uh, especially for s what a scholar is engaged in, uh, people will sometimes think about a scholar as 
you know, well, you're just, you're smart or you sort of, you know stuff. But a lot of what has to be done is actually quite creative. It, it's, it's, it's got a dimension that is, you know, how, what does it mean to think about a problem differently? Uh, well, it actually is a degree of imagination. It's a degree of how do you get outside of a possibility space that other people are trapped in? Well, that's what a musician or a painter or others do at different points in the past, and we recognize it by talking about their invention of a style or their ability to you know, innovate and do something different, and scholars are engaged in a similar kind of task. I think that the activity they're engaged in is not always as accessible in certain ways as maybe these other creative media uh, forms are. Do you have like baseball cards of no. <laughs> different people in your department that we can collect? Or no, just, no. You, it might be kind of a cool thing to start. Uh, I you never yeah. know. I think they would go pretty quick <laughs> on eBay. But uh, um, so I, 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 I do think though that there are some similarities in that um, you know some of what is done in the academic context is regular and routine. So, you know, it's, it's not like, just like a painter doesn't create a new painting every day, um, so too a scholar doesn't, you know, dig in and write a new book or, you know, write a new article every day. Sometimes what they do is, you know, respond to student emails and grade papers and, and other things like that. Go on podcasts. Well, go on podcasts. There you go. Uh, You're actually off right now, I think. <laughs> You're not getting paid for this. <laughs> no, this is definitely not 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 paid activity. I think that there has been a attempt, um, especially with the growth of social media and some other formats that allow for a little bit more accessibility than just you know a scholarly monograph or an article in a journal, and that's that's interesting to see because. From what I've been able to tell in looking at some of this this work, people are very interested and um, and appreciate the opportunity to be able to see some of that creativity, and you know have access to it maybe in a way that wasn't so easy a couple decades ago. I actually do appreciate when COVID hit and everything got shut down. I I was home with the kids and whatnot, and even just listening to our governor and the Minnesota Department of Health going up there and giving their talk about what was going on, I actually found it really interesting to see what was being said and how things were being handled. And this, I'm not bringing this up for political reasons. Mm -hmm. I actually found it quite engaging to just mm -hmm. hear not only what they were saying, but how they were saying it and to try and figure out, okay, well, what what is truth between what is maybe being a little biased or what isn't that bad and what is that bad, engaging that. Because I haven't been reading news headlines or watching the news or anything for years because it is it takes a lot of effort yes, <laughs> to, to absolutely. actually dig in and find out, okay, I'm, I read the story. Okay, now what's the truth behind the story? Because it really doesn't take that much investigation. You no, can, but everybody, everybody's busy. Everybody, Everybody is busy. People have got lots of stuff going on. And, and I think that, you know, if there's one thing as a philosopher that I try and encourage in uh, students is there are ways that you can engage in everyday scrutiny in the midst of being busy. Yeah. Um, that you can learn to sort of 
ask one or two quick questions in your head as you are listening to news stories or, or, or similar sorts of things to recognize that you're getting the surface and there's always something beneath the surface. It doesn't mean what's beneath the surface is nefarious. It just means that there's more like that. This is, and that how do you get past the surface? You have to ask some questions. And if you can be disposed to be a question asker, if you can be somebody who's curious, so not, again, not cynical, skeptical, not, you know, I, I'm going to ask a question because I know at the bottom of it you're motivated by money politics or something mm-hmm. like that, but actually a genuine curiosity to say, I want to understand why claims are being made. I want to understand what their basis is. I want to understand what people's motivations are because that's part of what it means to be human, part of what it means to sort of flourish as a human is to engage with other humans in this, you know, deeper layer rather than just high by how's the weather. Um, uh, In 2008, (laughs) I had finished up my social experiment project, which was I went around and asked 300 people. I actually took a road trip and random people on the street. The street, the three questions were, what is life? What are four things that you personally need to live or survive? And then finally, what is the meaning of life? Mm. And I compiled all 300 people's answers, threw it in a book every once in a while, said something about that person or said something about our relationship or what I knew and all that kind of stuff. And it was fascinating because, first of all, what is life and what is the meaning of life? Depending upon you, you might answer those exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. You also might answer, well, the actual definition of what it means to be alive and then the moral obligation of what it means to have the meaning of life. All those different things. The four things that you need to live or survive. Well, food and water, that was the stereotypical one. But you always got those people as well that said, like, well, I need books. I need sunshine. I need whatever kind of thing. Some people answered all three questions in 16 seconds. Some people ranted for 10 minutes. And just learning about people and learning about, it's not always what's said, it's how it's said Mm -hmm. and the motivation behind it. So I did that for four years, released it. Um, I was going to do the 10th anniversary in 2018, but then I was at home and busy and doing different things. So I made the 11th anniversary. This this one goes up to 11. (laughs) Really excited about that. But then it now it's, you know, 13, 14 years later. And can I still <laughs> can I still say it's the 11th anniversary edition? But I did ask about another 100 people, and I was going to put okay. the original book and this new one because something funny happened between the first one and the second one, and that was I was saved. I became a Christian. Mm-hmm. I understood what it meant that I am a sinner and Jesus died for me. Mm-hmm. Whereas we were talking beforehand that I was, grew up in a professing Christian church, school, all these different things, but I never got it. It was just something that I did. It was something that I took for granted. I never actually realized, no, I am a sinner. Mm-hmm. It's not just that everybody's a sinner. No, I am a sinner. So that was the change. So I was really excited to release this new edition because my write-ups are going to be much different this time Mm -hmm. as well. So it's not only a social experiment with going up to random people, it's also a psychological self-evaluation experiment 
on how am I writing now compared to 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. So I was fascinated by this, but I haven't exactly, I started a podcast <laughs> in here as well, and it's much easier to have a conversation with somebody rather than um, transcribe somebody's answer for three minutes. Okay, what word was that? Okay, go back. What word yeah. was that? No, very much easier to edit a conversation. So I'm kind of focused on this right now. But that I'm listening to what you're saying, and it seems like that's kind of right up your alley. Like the motivations behind people, how people interact with each other, the, the, um, the biases that are maybe inherent there. Um, one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you as well was you're, you're a Christian who's in the field of philosophy, who's also doing the philosophy of science, mm -hmm. which this is almost like a unicorn. <laughs> Isn't it? Like, well, you don't see don't these in the that. wild all the time. Um, I, I mean, you may not see us in uh, see philosophers in the wild that much, no matter what. But uh, uh, you are there, though. <laughs> um, you have to lift up the rock to I find think, them. Yeah, I think that the distribution of people who are religious believers and Christians, specifically in academia, is certainly a smaller proportion of the total than uh you know in the within the population at large or something like that however at the same time the the kinds of questions that i am interested in and ask are in certain ways quite similar to what my other colleagues ask it's not like i have i i stand out tremendously from them because i'm asking very different questions they actually have quite similar questions quite similar interests and we uh, collaborate quite actively uh, as a consequence. So I think that probably what it means for me is that especially when talking to people who make claims about the science, whether they are believers or not, I feel like I end up being somebody to sort of raise my hand and say, slow down, wait a second, are you sure about that? Um, and that includes the claims that somehow the sciences uh, yield clearly atheistic conclusions. And it also is uh, when people say that uh, particular scientific claims obviously have to be rejected as being somehow inconsistent with uh, a particular theological doctrine or scriptural interpretation. And as a philosopher of science, uh, I've going to be one of the first people who wants to say, let's be careful we're not being hasty in uh, making those claims because they are claims that require interpretation. They are claims that require recognizing that maybe when they're made, they're made with motivations of certain kinds and that they are made without necessarily the imprimatur of science, capital S. You know, just because a scientist says this is what science says um, doesn't mean that this is what science says. Um, and one of the things that is quite clear from uh, my experience over time is that there's incredible heterogeneity within the scientific community. There's also that heterogeneity within the philosophical community. And that where we run into the most trouble is when we make assumptions about what other people think. Um, you know, oh, you are a, uh, a philosopher, um, you know, you must think this, or, oh, you are a, a Christian or a Muslim, uh, you must think this or that. And 
Um, I think probably if there's any thing that I've uh, learned over the time that I have been involved in academia is that the best response is to sort of say, um, no, I, I think we need to ask whether or not that really is the case. We need to, we need to do the step back, slow down, and inquire. Um, but that takes time. That's an that's a, uh, uh, invitation to conversation and not something that can be done quickly. Um, and obviously in the context of teaching, you can do that in a classroom uh, with students and have discussions and the like, but for the most part on a day-to-day basis, we don't necessarily have opportunities where we can go as uh, deep with other people because the exchanges tend to be short, quick, and not as substantive. Uh, but I do think that some of uh, our patterns of social media use may actually be part of the problem here as well because they too foster uh, overly quick reactions and impulses uh, rather than reflection. Um, and that then can reinforce existing biases and contribute to people being caught in echo chambers where they hear things similar to what they already think rather than uh, be challenged to step back and maybe say, well, wait a second, maybe I need to adopt a slightly different perspective to really understand what's going on. Interesting question. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. Are your kids on social media? Oh, yeah. My kids are on social what, media. How, how old were they when you permitted them? Uh, we, we did a about age... 13, 14, okay. before we let kids have So we definitely were... I have a 10-year-old coming up. He's going to be 11 in December. And I'm like, well, no, he doesn't even need a cell phone until he's probably 16 or 17. We, we definitely were late adopters by comparison yeah. with the friends around them. We have a neighbor uh, girl who's also 10, and she is always holding her phone every time <laughs> I see her. And no, there's so much. We're we're out on your deck right now, and I one one of the times that you were talking, I felt bad because I obviously looked away for like three <laughs> seconds. But it was a blue jay, like you yeah. know, ten feet away from me, and I was like, "That's awesome! I love blue jays." But um, I think I mentioned this before on the podcast, but you probably haven't heard it, so I'm going to tell you because we're in the midst of a conversation that other people have the option of listening to all around the world if they want. Right. My wife actually wrote a uh, a marriage like counseling book. So the title is, um, I don't know what the title is, but either way, (laughs) chapter one, use your words, end of book, put it down. (laughs) But that is such a universal thing in life. If you have a question about somebody's actions or something that somebody has said or something that you've heard, the, the best course of action is always just ask a question. Ask, say, you know what? Okay, what happened here? Okay, what did you say? Okay, what did you mean by saying that? I'm a parent, so, you know, my two kids and getting to the bottom of a story where my son comes in and, well, I have to shower now. The neighbor girl was throwing dirt at me. Well, I find out that there's so much more involved in this story. It took like about 10 minutes of just sitting down and asking questions and people getting pushed on swings and hitting each other in the face and <laughs> all of this stuff. And it comes down to, okay, you need to go over to the neighbor girl actually and apologize. Yeah. But it started out with the neighbor girl was throwing dirt at me. 
Well, there's more to this story than just 10-year-olds throwing dirt at each other. And getting to the bottom of that, it does take time. It takes one of the themes of the podcast as well in the very first couple episodes was empathy. Actually mm. trying to see the world from somebody else's eyes. That's something that takes a lot of effort. That, does, that doesn't just come naturally. Um, how many students do you usually, I know last year was a different year, but like how many classes do you usually teach on an average year? Like how many students? Oh, it, it depends a lot. Um, the, you know, we typically would teach two classes a semester and those classes can have large lecture structure, you know, 60, 70, 80, 100 plus students. In each um, one? In each one. Oh, wow. And they would have maybe uh, discussion sections that would happen also where they would break out into smaller groups. Sometimes they're graduate students only. Sometimes they're freshmen, like a freshman seminar. So they can have very different dynamics depending on uh, how they look um, on the sort of registration scheme. Probably, you know, depending on year to year, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not teaching probably at the same volume as, as many other people, but maybe I'm seeing, you know, hundreds of students a year. Uh, you know, people who teach, especially in the sciences, they might end up teaching much larger lecture classes and seeing uh, many more students. But, of course, it makes sense that you wouldn't do that in philosophy because part of what you're trying to do is foster discussion, and you can't mm -hmm. do that simply by talking at people from the podium. Yeah. But I was going to come back to the point you were making about asking questions and getting to the bottom of the story because I think that you've uh, reminded me of uh, something that uh, has always left a strong impression on me in, in reading uh, the New Testament and the life of Jesus, which is that Jesus asks a lot of questions. And uh, in interesting sorts of ways, he doesn't always answer people. Um, he leaves them hanging. Uh, sometimes. And so it's quite clear that the exercise of asking questions is not simply about securing more information, that it is a digging deeper device. And when people decline to go deeper, Jesus discovers that through questions that he engages them with, um, you know, especially certain interactions with the Pharisees. And they ask him by what authority, and then he asks them a question, and they say, well, we're not going to answer you. And they say, well, I'm not going to answer you. And, and you get this realization that, you know, what he's engaged in there is an attempt to kind of push them beyond where they are currently. They're not willing to go. And so he just says, okay, then we won't, we won't bother for the moment. Obviously, we know from other exchanges that he had, say with Nicodemus or others, that people did get stuff and they they were tracking and they wanted more and came and asked more if we take away a kind of procedural lesson from the way jesus uh, engaged with others um, it's that uh, he did so with a demeanor of asking rather than telling you know he clearly had a message to bring there's no question about that but he certainly packaged it in such a way that questions were always uh, a main method. And it came down to the motivation of those he was interacting with. I was thinking of, you know, his last day. Uh, Peter denied him, just gave him a look. And Peter knew it's 
exactly what mm-hmm. had happened. With Herod, he didn't say anything. Herod wanted to show. Right. He wanted entertain me. With uh, Pilate, then very rarely kind of asked answered questions, but every once in a while he did um, with the high priest and the Sanhedrin, and he didn't really respond too much there right? either. And that's, I, I had read the what would Jesus, Jesus do in his steps or whatever. Mm-hmm. I had the comic book version, okay. actually. <laughs> but <laughs> I did not enjoy that at all because I think it was a very hyper-focused on one aspect of just, you know, quote-unquote, be a good person. Kind of thing, and it's like, well, I think that's really hyper focused on what it means to be a Christian, because it, it it's almost you're not a good person. That's kind of in his steps is realizing mm. I'm not like Jesus. Not I can try and be like Jesus. No, the first step is I'm not like Jesus mm-hmm. in it's any different way. Perspective. Um, I'm. I we're gonna wrap up here in just a second, and okay. I think I had something, but I don't know what it is because I'm heavily medicated and I don't have a good memory. <laughs> I listen to a lot of Martin Lloyd Jones. Oh, actually, I do want to have one little more. So I, I'm avid reader in my twenties because okay. single, <laughs> I didn't have kids. <laughs> So I just wanted to throw some things at you. Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Mm-hmm. Did you ever mm-hmm. read that? So I have worked through parts of Ayn Rand's uh, work. I've never read it cover to cover. Nor did I. Atlas Shrugged, I believe, is about 1,000 or 1,100 pages. It's a pretty pages. big read, yeah. I got to page 900 and threw it away from me and said, there's no way I'm listening to John Galt talk for 200 pages. <laughs> there is no way. And if you have no idea what I'm talking no, about. No, I, I know what you're talking go, about. Yeah. Anybody who's listening, go go look at the philosophy in Ayn Rand and you'll understand. It was very well written, actually, and she has a lot of good points. But once she gets to her ultimate deduction of almost the meaning of life, it's like, wow, no, no thank you. Um, so that was one that I wanted to throw at you. Yeah, I mean, I think in the case of Ayn Rand, the interesting thing, uh, independent of the particular views that uh, are espoused there in terms of an objectivist philosophy, is um, an awareness that the uh, the delivery of those ideas uh, is potentially more persuasive and interestingly more compelling if it's packaged as a as a novel rather than just as a self-help book or something yes. along those lines. Who is John Galt? You don't need to know that answer. <laughs> don't even I don't I never watched the movie or anything. There was one other one too that I had read that I can't think of off the top of my head. I had it. It went along with it though, but I was really curious if you read it and if I think about it I'll text you. Okay. <laughs> Well, I'll just say that, I mean, uh, one of the things that uh, I mentioned earlier about the ways in which different kinds of reading can be, you know, realistic and stimulate one to be thinking about real issues. Um, I mean, I think that one of the uh, reasons why there is good motivation for uh, novels and looking at novels is that sometimes they are the quickest way into some of these deep issues because instead of talking at you, you get absorbed into the story and then you are caught up in the contemplation by virtue of that. And um, 
you might argue that the reason why Ayn Rand was not as successful with Atlas Shrugged is that uh, it was too long and needed a better editor so that <laughs> the, it was better paced. <laughs> I had the time to read 900 pages back then. Not anymore. Wow, how to wrap this up. Oh, I know. So this podcast started with Tommy and I. I'm Adam, by the way. Yeah. I've never said that out loud. It's going to be in the comments that I'm Adam, Al Alan and Adam. Somewhere along the teen episodes, I had mentioned that I have a very mathematical mind, mm -hmm. very organized, very structured, go to A to B to C. I, that's how I do, but I don't, that's not me completely, though. Because mm -hmm. my buddy Tommy had said, well, I have a very philosophical mind, kind of in juxtaposition to my, or in contrast, I believe is the way he was saying it, to my mathematical mind. But my reason of bringing this up is I'm actually both. Mm -hmm. And I, I think a lot of people would, would see that in me, that I, I'm not just a, like the scientist in the lab coat that's very serious and whatnot. I do have the mathematical and the philosophical mind. You as well, very philosophical mind. But in digging deeper, you probably have the secondary mathematical mind where you're really getting in there and you're trying to see how, not only that you recognize that A leads to B, but how it got there. Mm -hmm. And you almost need both of those aspects. So the reason I'm bringing this up is people aren't just static characters. Like in a novel, you have a static character. In a good novel, you have a round character. Mm -hmm. Well, every single person is actually a round character. Mm -hmm. Every single person has so many facets to them that if you just take the time and put in the investment, which not everybody can get to know everybody. Mm -hmm. So I do thank you yeah. for sitting down and being with me for this. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And you have like 10 minutes for your last words. If you want to try, I don't know how to wrap you up, man. You're, you're, that was awesome. Though, because <laughs> well, I, I brought you on because my buddy, Tommy, I don't even know if he still listens to these or not. I don't know if he has the okay. entire COVID, but Hey, Tommy, I got you a philosopher. I got you one. <laughs> and here he is. <laughs> well, I hope that, uh, uh, people are interested in the kinds of, sort of questioning that I've been advocating, whatever the interests that they might have. I think one of the things that I try and strive to encourage uh, in students and uh, others is that, you know, curiosity is not equally applied. And so you don't have to be curious about everything to be curious. And if you just are curious about the things that are most salient to you, that's actually the best starting point for a more philosophical kind of living because it's asking questions about the things you're already thinking about and one question leads to another and as long as you don't stop asking questions then uh, they should be leading you in a nice golden chain of uh, uh, questioning that uh, will lead you uh, down through many years of learning new things seeing things from different perspectives and I think being in a uh, richer position to appreciate uh, the world and what's in it uh, than you were beforehand. As Christians as well, I believe, I, I could be wrong about this, so help me out here. 
isn't there the the golden chain of salvation? Isn't that that is sometimes the way it's described in theology. Do you remember um, that the golden chain would be, I think, the way they interpret Romans eight. Um, okay, and uh, I'm going to forget it offhand, but it has to do with uh, the different components in um, uh, salvation, justification, sanctification, and how those things go together, and they're packaged quite clearly by Paul in Romans 8. And so that's sometimes described as the golden chain to emphasize the interconnected nature of those. Which Romans 8 starts with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Christ Jesus. And he has this huge dissertation or argument talking about uh, those who are in the spirit compared to those who are in the flesh in there as well as other parts of different letters goes into that as well playing off of your digging into and asking questions and my motivation of doing this podcast when you're reading the bible ask the bible questions Mm -hmm. seriously and you're going to go down a rabbit hole of glory Mm. of finding those answers the kids and i are reading proverbs uh, for our family worship right now wow we're just you know, not everyone we go into very much, but every once in a while, I think there was uh, uh, those who sleep. Uh, if, if, if you love sleep, and I can't remember the exact passage, but it was basically talking about if you love sleep. And then the next verse was something along the lines of you won't have any bread. Mm-hmm. You won't have your daily bread. Um, I compared that to Matthew 26, verse 40, mm-hmm. of Jesus coming to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Wow. Can I have some help with that word? <laughs> Gethsemane. Thank you. <laughs> um, and saying, you know, you're asleep again. Watch and pray lest you mm-hmm. fall into temptation. The only reason I made that connection, it wasn't in the Bible in the footnotes. It's just because I've read the Bible and it perked up in my head. Mm-hmm. Now, is, is, a, is it an A to B um, perfect correlation? No. But it is a broad view of the Bible that, yes, we need to watch out for temptation. We need to be in God's word. We need to be in prayer. We need to be in praise and worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the importance of being in a local church together and actually talking and communicating with each other. All of these aspects and all these variables go into our relationship with God and our relationship as adopted children of God with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's my encouragement, is in order to have those biblical connections in your head, you need to be in the Word, and you need to have those checks and balances as well, mm-hmm. <laughs> where mm-hmm. I might make a connection in the Word with something, and my brother Alan will say, you know what, that isn't really saying that in that <laughs> instance. So that is the the wonderful thing about being in a local congregation, mm-hmm. being in God's word, and being willing to talk to people for an hour or two as it's recorded. Well, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Thank you.